last week we talked about the Lord's Supper. Um, Jesus, in the Lord's Supper, he sent his two main guys, Peter, excuse me, Peter and John. He sent them into the city. And he says, hey, you guys, I need you guys to go um, prepare the place for us to have a meal. And, of course, they went, and it was everything that Jesus said it was going to be. Um, but then they get the meal ready, and they're about to eat it. And then Jesus makes this crazy claim. He says, this bread that you guys have been eating and celebrating your whole life and what everyone's been celebrating for thousands of years, yeah, that bread is me. He says, this cup that you've been drinking and, and doing every single year to represent this Passover and what your ancestors have been doing for thousands of years, yeah, that cup, that's my blood. And then everyone was like, what do you mean by this? But Jesus makes this crazy claim. He's saying that that Passover event that has been celebrated for thousands of years is all about him. And this was... a. Uh, alluded to what Jesus was going to do, that he was going to die for us. He said, this bread, it's broken for you. This cup, it's my blood that's poured out for you. And so we eat the bread and we drink the cup to remember what Jesus did, but then to proclaim his death. But the disciples, as we continue reading through the story, they're still not quite getting it. They still don't quite understand what Jesus is actually about to do. Uh, so right after that meal, Jesus and his disciples, they go to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus tells them as plain as he can what is about to happen. He's like, you guys didn't get it when I said this bread is my body that's about to be broken and this cup is blood. So he, he tells them in the next part of the story, he says, I'm about to be betrayed. Um, and he said that the cup and the, and the blood that represents my body. Um, and then he tells all of them that whenever all this happens, that everyone is going to leave him. Everyone's going to fall away. Everyone's going to run away. Um, and that he is going to be arrested and put to death. Like this is what he tells them. Um, but he says, don't worry. Because after I rise from the dead, I'm going to appear to you guys in Galilee. Like that's as clear as Jesus is being. He's like, you guys, whenever I'm, uh, whenever I'm arrested and all this is going to happen, you guys are going to leave me and fall away, but don't worry. Like I know this is going to happen, but when I raise from the dead, I'm going to meet you guys in Galilee. And the disciples, they're like, what do you mean raised from the dead? What do you mean? Like, we, they still did not get what he was talking about because they just started arguing about, no, we're never going to leave you, Jesus. Um, we, 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 we're never going to leave you. So Peter, he stands up. Um, and Peter says, like, even if everyone else falls away, like, I'm never going to leave you, Jesus. Like, even if I have to die for you, I'm never going to leave you. And, of course, the other 11 disciples, they couldn't let Peter one-up them, so everyone else says the same thing. Like, no, Jesus, we are with you to the end. Even if you die, we're going to die with you. Um, so that is where we're going to pick up in the story. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. If you have your Bible, turn to Mark 14. Um, in verse 32, it says, Then they came to this place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, he fell to the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And then he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake for one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
And once again, he went away and he prayed and he, and he said the same thing. And again, he came and he found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. And then he came a third time and he said, are you still sleeping and resting three times in a row? He says, enough, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let's go. My betrayer is near. It's like, like this is like the start of like a really bad movie, right? Like just the way that all this is happening in the middle of the night, all that. Um, but basically the story goes like right after the Lord's Supper, right after he tells them all this stuff, they leave the room and they go to the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, like what is that? That's just a fancy term for a mount full of olives. Like basically it's literally a hill of olives. Like that's what it's named after because it's, that, that's all it is. It's just a fancy term for a hill of olives. But this is a regular place that Jesus would go to to find solitude and get away with God and to pray. Like this was his main place to go and to pray. Um, in Gethsemane, which is what he, they call it, the, the place of Gethsemane, it's actually a Hebrew word that means olive press. So basically this is a place that they would go and they would grow olives and then they would use, like, go to the Gethsemane, and they would press the olives. They would crush them and squeeze them, and that's how they would make olive oil. So this is the place where they grow olives and then make olive oil. Um, in the Gospel of John, he calls this place a garden. And there's so much symbolism happening here. Like, almost too much to get into. But Jesus knows that just like how the olives are pressed here to make oil, he is about to be pressed beyond what he thinks he can bear. Jesus said that he is deeply stressed and he is troubled. And he says to Peter, James, and John, I, I am grieved, deeply grieved to the point of death. And Luke, whenever Luke, he tells the same story, he says that Jesus, he begins to sweat drops of blood. Like that's how stressed out Jesus is. This shows us the humanity of Jesus. We know that oh, while Jesus is 100% God, Jesus is also 100% human, and so he's showing us what it, like Mark is writing here, and he's showing us like Jesus was still human. He still knew what pressure felt like. He still knew what it felt like being under pressure. How many of you guys have ever been under pressure, or you feel like you're under pressure right now? You feel any kind of stress, right? That's not just me in the house, right? Jesus knew what it felt like to be under pressure. He knows what it feels like, that pressure that you're feeling. He knows that feeling. The pressure that he was feeling, though, is more than knowing that he was going to be betrayed and executed. Because I think one of the bad things, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, we can debate about this later, about being God and knowing exactly the future. Like, he knows exactly what's about to happen. He knows what is about to happen. But the stress he's feeling, it's not because he's about to be betrayed by a friend. It's not because he's about to be arrested wrongfully and then hung on a cross. He is... He knew that he was about to experience the weight of the sin of the world and bear the entire wrath of God for all sins. All sins in the past, all sins in the present, and all sins in the future. It was all about to be poured on Jesus. He knew the weight he was about to carry. He would become the sin bearer on our behalf. And because of that, he was about to be forsaken by his own father. He wasn't worried about being hurt or tortured or killed. He didn't want to be separated from his father, even for a moment. 
That's how Jesus felt. So what does Jesus do whenever he feels stressed? What does he do whenever he feels the way of the world, very literally? The, Mar- the Bible says that he goes and he prays. Mark says he goes a little farther, and he says he falls to the ground. And there's two reasons that are both probably true. Like he could have went and fell down on the ground out of submission and out of honor, humility towards God. Like that's just how he prayed. He, he, he bowed down to the ground. But it is also true that he was probably under so much stress and so much weight that he just couldn't stand it anymore. And he literally just collapsed under the weight of what he knew he was about to do. And then it says when he prays, the first thing he says, is Abba, Father. Abba was an Aramaic term that was used to call or to refer to your dad. And it doesn't necessarily mean like, like daddy. Like that's what a lot of preachers say. Like this is the Aramaic word for, for daddy or like, like, like dada, like what a kid would use. It's not necessarily that because adult children would use it to refer to their fathers just as much as little children. But it was definitely way more intimate than just saying father. Like, if you're a three-year-old, like you wouldn't just walk up to your dad and be like, Father, I would like whatever. Like, that's just not how it happens. Because it's not as intimate. It's more official. And so, Abba, it was an intimate way of talking to God. And now, in the first century, this would have been really weird. Like, you don't talk to God like he's your father. Like, and especially don't call him dad. Like, like this is not what you do for God. Like, God is supposed to be separate. God is supposed to be far away. He's supposed to be holy. He's supposed to be reverent and, and holy. Um, but that is exactly who Jesus says he is for us. And that is exactly how Jesus knew him as, as dad. Like not just God, not just father, but as dad. Like a loving parent that desires to care for us. That is who God is to us. And that is who he was to Jesus. So Mark fourteen thirty six, the prayer, Jesus says, Abba. Father, all things are possible for you. This, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. So there's so many things that we can learn from this prayer. The first thing that we can learn from this prayer is that in order, like if Jesus prayed, then how much more should we pray? Like think about it. Like Jesus was God, like, like and he still prayed to God. Like first of all, part of that doesn't make sense, but... Like, if Jesus prayed because he was still 100% human, like, how much more than do we need to pray? Like, if Jesus, who was God, prayed, we are not God, and we need God more, like, how much more should we do that? In order to be like Jesus, we need to be with Jesus and do what he did. In prayer, it's not always just asking to get something from God, but the main purpose of prayer is to submit our desires to God. It is to become more like Jesus. It's allowing God's presence to come in and change us and to saturate our heart. The second thing that we can learn from this prayer is that Jesus addresses God as Abba, Father. He was reminding himself that God, like the God that we talk about, the God that we know, Jesus is reminding himself that God, he's not just an impersonal being in the sky. Like God is not just creator. God is not just all-powerful. God is not just up there keeping everything together. But he is an intimate father that loves and cares for us each individually. He is a father that sees our needs. And he desires to help. 
Another thing that we can learn from this prayer is Jesus acknowledges that all things are also possible for God. Not only is God Father, but He is loving, or not only is He Father, not only is He loving, not only is He caring, but He is also all-powerful. That means that He has the ability to show us just how caring and loving He is. Like it's one thing just to be caring and loving, but if you don't have any power to back that up, then what use is that? But God is both. He is all-powerful. He can do things for us. And like I said so many times, that if two things are true, like if God loves you, if God cares for you, if that's true, but also if he is all-powerful, if he is in control, if he has all authority and he can do anything, if those two things are true, then we can put our full trust in him. We can trust that no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what, what is happening in our life, whether it feels good or not, we can trust that everything will work out according to our good because God cares for us and he can work things out for us. Everything is going to be for our good. We can trust him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Another thing that we can learn is that Jesus, he was brutally honest in his prayer. There's nothing that we can or should hide from God. God already knows everything. God is not offended by our prayers. The Psalms are prayers that are honestly like maybe too brutally honest. Like you see David, uh, like he was like he's praising God in one Psalm, and most of the Psalms are praising. Most of the Psalms are good and, and uplifting, but some of them they're like really like that's in the Bible. Why would you pray that? Like. Prayers should always be brutally honest. First, God already knows what you're feeling and hearing or, and saying, but he still wants us to be honest. And Jesus trusted that since all things are possible with God, that God could take away the cup of wrath that he was about to bear. Jesus' human side, the human side of Jesus, is wanting to avoid the agony of, of the death and wrath and separation from his father. That's the human side. And so he's saying, if all things are possible, God, God, I need you to take this away from me. He's like, Dad, don't you see me? Like, Dad, you sent me here for a mission, but Dad, what I'm about to go through is too much to bear. And if it is possible, and all things are possible for you, if it is possible, Dad, I need you to help me through this. Take this away from me. But the fifth thing that we learn from this prayer is that Jesus submits to God's plan. We shouldn't be afraid to tell God what's on our mind or heart, but Jesus models for us what submission to God's will looks like. Sometimes God's plan in your life is going to be hard and difficult and is going to be too much for you to bear. That's almost promised for us in the Bible. Like just a lot of us, we think whenever we give our life to Jesus, we start coming to church, like life is going to be easier. In some ways it can. But the promise is that life is also going to be hard. And sometimes it seems like God is going to be unfair. And he's going to allow things to happen in your life that seem unfair, that seem like it's too much for us to bear, that we don't seem like it should happen to us. And we should tell God how we feel we should ask him to take that away, to get that out of here. But at the same time, we should also ask him to help us submit to God, God's will, even when he doesn't change our circumstance. We know all things are possible for God. Whatever the circumstance that's happening in life, we can believe and trust that he can change that and he can take that away. But at the same time, we need to ask that God, even if you don't, God, help me to submit to you because I know that you are good. 
And that's what Jesus said. He said, God, not what I will, but what you will. God, I know, I know I came here for a purpose and a reason. I know you sent me here because you so love the world that you sent your only son, and that is me. But God, but Dad, this is going to be too much. Dad, this is a lot that you're asking of me, but not what I will, but what you will. Prayer is not just to get God to change his mind, but prayer is to align our heart and our desires with God's will and God's desires. It's to take our will and our desires, and it's to kill that. And to say, that is no more. God, give me your will. Give me your desires, because mine is not worthy. And that's exactly what Jesus modeled for us. But the disciples, they did not follow in Jesus' steps. They failed in the garden just like every human since Adam. Like they failed, we failed, you failed, I failed, we all failed, and Jesus didn't. So Jesus, he comes back, think about this. Like he comes back after a gut-wrenching prayer session, and three times he finds them, Peter, James, and John, falling asleep after he specifically asked them to stay awake and pray. Like, imagine the disappointment when Jesus came back. Like, think about what, like, this is what all is happening in Jesus' mind at the moment. He's like, I need you guys to stay awake and pray. Like, I'm about to go through something that is harder than any human being in the history of human history has ever dealt with. And I need you to pray with me. I, I, I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. I need to pray. I need my dad to take this away if it's possible. I need his will. And I need you guys to stay awake and pray. I need help through this. And think about, he comes back and he says, you guys are asleep. I just asked you to pray. He goes back. He says all the same things to God again. Like, God, if it's possible, take this cup away. He comes back, and they're asleep again. He's like, really, I need you guys to stay awake. I need your help. I need you to pray with me. You don't understand what I'm about to go through. And then he goes back, and he prays, God, take this away, but not what I will, but you will. And then he comes back, and he says, really, you guys are asleep? Again, three times. And he says, okay, now it's time. My betrayer is coming. We're going to get to that story next week. Imagine the disappointment. And Jesus warns them to pray that they may not fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the flesh that, that Jesus is talking about, it's not the way that Paul uses it. Um, flesh, it can have other meanings. It's not just that animalistic drive inside of us, but the flesh that Jesus is talking about, just the human physical body. He says, your flesh is weak. Your flesh, it wants to fall asleep. The flesh is weak, but the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So pray that you might not fall into temptation. And so Jesus, he gives us the formula for conquering temptation. It's to stay alert and to pray. And Jesus, he shows us that no matter how, how willing we are to do the right thing, we can't by willpower alone. Like we can want to stay up and pray. We can want to do the right thing. We can want to overcome that temptation. We can want to do this or that. But willpower alone is only going to take us so far and we're going to fail. He says the, the flesh is weak but the spirit is willing. That's why we need to pray. But here's one of the main points. Where the disciples failed, Jesus succeeded. When the disciples were asleep, Jesus was awake. When the disciples failed to pray, Jesus, he stayed up and prayed. When the disciples did whatever they felt like doing, which in that moment it was just sleeping, Jesus obeyed God's will that he didn't want to do instead of his. 
The disciples failed in the garden, just like every human since Adam and Eve. And that is the part I want to focus on. It's Jesus' obedience in the garden. There's three different gardens in the Bible. There's the Garden of Eden, which is the first couple chapters uh, of the Bible, and that is paradise. That's where God created us to be, to be in his presence, to walk with him. Everything is provided for. There's abundance, everything you ever need, everything you ever want. It's right there in the Garden of Eden. God gives us an assignment. He gives us meaning and purpose. He gives us everything we want. That's the Garden of Eden. And then there's the Garden of Gethsemane. That is where Jesus, he goes and he represents us to God. And then in the, the last chapter of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it talks about a new garden. It's a garden that is actually a city built by God. But it's the new Garden of Eden that, that God is preparing for us. And it's what we refer to as heaven. Like those are the three main gardens. And it's fitting that Jesus is in a garden because it was in a garden where sin entered the world and brought with it all the death and chaos and anxiety and depression and all the bad things that are happening in life that happened in the garden of Eden. So it's fitting that Jesus, he goes back to the garden. In the garden of Eden, Adam and Eve's sin brought death into the world. But in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus chose to be obedient for us sinners so that we can be saved. Think about all these different parallels that are happening between the Garden of Eden and Gethsemane. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they enjoyed luxury and abundance. Everything they needed was there. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus experienced agony and despair. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they had each other to care for. They were never alone. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was alone by himself while his best friends were asleep. In the Garden of Eden, eating the forbidden fruit, it seemed like a good idea. It seemed desirable. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the cup of suffering that Jesus was about to receive, it seemed painful and it seemed too much to bear. In the, Madame of Eve, or in, the, uh, in the Garden of Eden, there's no record of Adam and Eve ever praying. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is praying very desperately, almost even to where he's praying with drops of uh, sweats of blood. In the Garden of Eden, humans, because of our choice to rebel against God, we had to reface the reality of a hopeless end. That there was no more hope by doing things on our own. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus made the choice so that all who believe in him will have endless hope. Jesus' obedience in the garden is the first intentional step that Jesus takes to undo the curse of sin and death and to bring eternal life to all who believe and submit in him. And as a result, all who trust in Jesus and submit to Jesus, the way the Bible says that, all who are in Christ... All who are covered by the sacrifice of Jesus and live our lives according to his way, we get to live in the new Garden of Eden that he is preparing, which is now a city that is built by God. So there's three different gardens in the Bible. There's the Garden of Eden, there's the Garden of Gethsemane, and then there's the garden, which is the new city, the new Jerusalem that is awaiting for us. So those are the three main things. And the Apostle John which is, ironically, the exact same John that's asleep while Jesus is praying here in this story. He has a vision at the very end of his life, and he writes it down in a book called Revelation. And this is the, one of the last things he sees in the vision. Revelation chapter 21. He's talking about that new garden. 
He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live there with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. Here's my favorite part. It says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne, he said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. And then he says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. And I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. That is the promise to those who choose life in Jesus. But here's the opposite. It says, but the cowards, but the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And this is the second death. Phyllis would go ahead and come back up. And then John, he has more, more visions of what the actual city looks like. He describes it all in his beauty. And then one of the, in the very last chapter, this is what he describes. And he says, look, or this is Jesus speaking. John, he, he sees Jesus and Jesus says to him, look, I am coming again soon. And my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and Omega, the, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to eat the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Jesus chose obedience in the garden because we never could. Jesus died so that we could live. And all who believe in him and submit their lives under his authority, we get to live in that new city, in that new Jerusalem, where all death is gone, where there's no more tear and no more pain and no more grief because all those things are gone. That anxiety, that weight, that pressure you're feeling, none of that is going to happen in the new city that is awaiting us. But right now, we are in that middle garden. Think about that. We're in that middle garden. The Garden of Eden, it's gone. We're banished. We can't go back there. But the new garden city that God is preparing for us, it's not come yet, or not, at least not in full. So we're in the middle. So we're asking ourselves, like, what do we do in the middle garden? What do we do in Gethsemane? What do we do when we can't get back into Eden and we can't get into that new city garden yet? What do we do? We do what Jesus did. And we go to that place of prayer and we be with Jesus and we become more like him because you can't become more like Jesus unless you first spend time with Jesus and you spend time with God and then we do what Jesus did. And this is what Jesus did. This is the example that he gave us. He gives us a prayer to pray and this is something that we should do every day. If we wanna do what Jesus did, prayer was a main part of that. 
the disciples, they saw what Jesus did. They saw the miracles and the teachings and the authority he had, the, the relationship he had with God. Like Jesus teaches how to pray. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, remember God, he's not just an impersonal, he's our, he's our Father. We, he, he's personal to us. We can know him like that. But your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. We pray that. We can pray that. But we say, God, let your kingdom come. God, let your will be done. Your way of life, your peace, your joy, your justice, your love, your forgiveness. Let all those things happen in my life. Let it happen in the world just as it does in heaven. Let it happen here. Give us today our daily bread. God, you are my provider. God, I have nothing without you. God, you provide my clothes. You provide my food. God, I, I need I need your acceptance today. I need your love today. God, you are my provider. That's what we're saying there. Forgive us of our debts. Forgive us of our sins. As we forgive our debtors, as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't bring us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Because God, you said that our flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. So God, help me overcome this temptation by relying on you. That's what we do in the middle garden. It's, a, it's seeking God. It's praying. It's getting closer to him. Because Jesus, he said that so himself. He says the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Willpower alone can't get you there. It's by relying on Jesus. It's by being with Jesus, spending time with him, by becoming more like him, and then doing what he did. So with every head bowed and every eye closed,